Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Episode 72 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we'll be discussing some weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about today? Today is a fourth Friday, or fifth Friday, and so that means that since we do four new topics a month, this is going to be a Catholic Answers Live program where I took weird questions from the audience. Today we're going to be asking why was Moses circumcised? We're going to be asking about disembodied animal brains. Uh, Will there be a time when God stops creating souls? Why did Jesus make dinosaurs? What could you do to deal with your oncoming zombie self? Is beauty objective? Why do male seahorses give birth during teleportation? Where is the person? And how heaven, purgatory, earth, and hell might be in four different universes, depending on how you want to look at it. Ooh, very interesting. So let's get right into it. The weird questions this week. Hello and welcome to Catholic Answers Live. I am Cy Kellett, your host. A very uh, sincere thank you to Matt Swain for uh, taking over the hosting duties yesterday for me. I appreciate it and needed a day off. I got a day off and I am rip-roaring, ready to go for Friday. And just in time for Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken, one of the best hours we do every month. Weird Questions means, well, basically any kind of offbeat, unusual uh, question that maybe we... You know, it just does. It's it's off the beaten path. I guess you probably know what the word weird is. I don't know why I'm uh, describing that, but uh, uh, we're not calling the the questioner weird. Uh, just the question. Like sometimes people have very odd questions, things we have maybe haven't heard before, and we collect those up. Mostly Jimmy collects them up. And then we uh, share them here on this show. Jimmy Aiken is senior apologist here at Catholic Answers, author of a whole bunch of things, including uh, the drama of salvation, which we've given out a few times recently, Jimmy, even when uh-huh. you weren't here. Oh, OK. People want to know, how do I how am I saved? That's impor- an important question to ask. Yeah. And not a weird one at all. <laughs> no, that's not a weird one. Actually, yeah, that falls. In. But if you have questions about other dimensions, uh, other planets, um, uh, possible strange occurrences like ghosts or um, giant monsters that live in the deep and how would a Catholic respond to them? All those are appropriate for weird questions. Swim away. Swim away from the monster? Yeah, that lives in the deep. No. Swim away from it. All right. Uh, what, what about those kind that can only detect motion? And just, I guess... You mean a motion detector? <laughs> That's not no, a... the monsters. Isn't that like what, one of the things from uh, Jurassic Park? But I so, think... That, go so, ahead, yeah. So... I, I should have known you would know Michael Crichton this. got this wrong in okay. the first Jurassic Park movie. Yep. Um, Michael Crichton is the author of the original Jurassic Park book that was the basis of the movie. And he got it wrong that Tyrannosaurus can't see things that don't move. And so in um, the first Jurassic Park movie... There's a scene where a Tyrannosaurus is on a rampage and it like eats this one guy. But then 
it looks at some people and they don't move and it just moves on. Right. And and then it was pointed out by actual paleontologists that no, Tyrannosaurus did not have motion based vision. They could see perfectly well. Oh. And so in at least the novel for Jurassic Park two, Michael Crichton retconned that. Oh. Um, retcon is a term term from the comic book industry. It means retroactive continuity. Yeah. Uh, you apply a, an explanation to something retroactively that maybe you got wrong the first time. Right. And so in the, in the novel, apparently, for Jurassic Park 2, they raised the question of why would this Tyrannosaur have not eaten the people who remained motionless? And, well, okay, maybe it had just eaten somebody else so it wasn't hungry. <laughs> that, that's a... Uh that's not the best retcon I've ever heard. No. It's it's pretty mediocre. But it but it, it kind of works. It is good to know in case I run into a tyrannosaur. But, yeah. Uh, don't count on being still. Right. Um probably don't, probably can't count on much if you're in the crosshairs. Uh eight uh, oh, I was going to give out the number but I'm not going to give out the number because I'm going to read some questions to you uh first. As I said Jimmy Aiken our guest it is weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy Aiken also does a pod call podcast <laughs> podcast <laughs> called Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, mm-hmm. in which you tackle similar weird uh, questions, but in much more greater detail. Yeah. T- broad topics. Yeah. Topics. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like ghosts or Bigfootses. Yeah. The one that or, just went up today is the mystery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh. Oh, yeah. So that's yeah. interesting. So that's um, uh, that's not exactly the same. as Well, it, no, you wouldn't the, normally put that in the, with like Bigfoot. No, for example. the way the the way the show is explained is it's a podcast that examines mysteries, both natural and supernatural. Yeah. So the natural ones include historical mysteries like oh. Watergate or um, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls or Jack the Ripper or whatever you might have. In addition to the yeah. supernatural ones like ghosts and demons and yeah. things like that. What is the plural of Bigfoot, by the way? Is it Big Feet or Bigfootsist? Uh, I don't know that uh, that dictionaries have taken on that subject. Mm -hmm. And so I think both are acceptable. I think um, also Bigfoot can also be a collective noun like sheep. Oh, yeah. Look at all those Bigfoot. Bigfoot. Yeah, that would work. Uh Um, Most people, I think, use Bigfoots. However, I think that's oh, the standard like, usage. Oh, there's one Bigfoot. Wait, no, there's two Bigfoots. Yeah. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Um, can I give you a question, a weird question? Yeah, can sure. Can we start off? Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis asks, was Moses circumcised? If he was, why was his heritage a surprise to him? Well, presumably Moses was circumcised, not just because he was Jewish, but because Egyptians also practiced circumcision. Oh. And so um, so there if he was unaware of his heritage, you know, the the fact he was circumcised would not have told him mm-hmm. that he was one of the Hebrew babies or had been one of the Hebrew babies because Egyptians were also circumcised. Um, however, I don't know that his heritage came as any kind of surprise to him. If you read early on in the book of Exodus, where Moses's early life is being described, he, you know, he. um was adopted, of course, by Pharaoh's daughter, and then he was wet nursed by his own mother mm-hmm. for a period, presumably of like two, three years, you know, which was typical for how long they breastfed children back then. And so during uh, it, it's it's quite likely that he would have been aware of his 
heritage either because he would have heard the story even from his own family members about how he came to be adopted by uh, by uh, Pharaoh's daughter or simply because there was no secret of it in the royal court that, uh, you know, everybody knew that Pharaoh's daughter had not been pregnant. Oh, and yeah. so uh, this baby shows up. It was one of the Hebrew babies that had been ordered to be put to death, but she had mercy on him. That's an exceptional thing. And so that would have even even if even if his adopted mother had not told him about it, other people in the court would have been aware of it and uh-huh. likely would have been the scuttlebutt among the servants. He might have been taunted, you know, when other boys in the court heard about this and oh, and, yeah. and so like oh you're 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 not one of us you're a hebrew um and then when he's an adult one of the first things that he does that we're told about is he intervenes in a fight between an Egyptian and a Hebrew and he ends up killing the Egyptian and hides his body in the sand and that displays um, uh, seems to display a consciousness of that the Hebrew he was defending was one of his own kinsmen yeah. and that he could get in trouble for uh, for having killed the Egyptian, uh, yeah. which he pr- presumably would not have if he was being raised as if he were a normal Egyptian prince. He might not have gotten in trouble in that kind of situation. It's like, hey, there was a fight. I intervened. I ended up accidentally killing the guy. Um, what we do see later on is that after Moses has gone to the land of Midian and acquired his wife Zipporah there, um, they have a son, and Gershom, and he has not uh, circumcised Gershom and gets in trouble for that with God. And Zipporah ends up circumcising Gershom and saving Moses's life. But that's not an indication that Moses wasn't circumcised. It's just an an indication that he had failed in one of his covenant duties once he was out of the land of Egypt, away from where people were normally circumcised, away from his fellow Hebrews and so forth. So he was living in an uncircumcised land and he followed that custom. Oh, so it had the, yeah, I see. It has the implication of kind of assimilating a yeah. little bit there. All right. Well, Dennis, thank you very, very much for that question. Uh, Brian asks the following uh, question. Scientists are suspending the life of separated animal brains. Mm-hmm. What is Catholic thought on this? Well, uh, in principle, uh, the Catholic church wouldn't have a problem with it. I'm not in terms of Catholic moral theology. So what they're doing here is they're saying, okay, uh, let's say we have a lab animal and we want to uh, take the brain out of the lab animal for research purposes and we want to keep the brain alive. Maybe, for example, so that we can learn more about how brains work and then later bring those techniques back to serve humanity so that we can do better brain surgery once we understand how the brain works or things like that. And um, so there can be legitimate research purposes for having a, a disembodied animal brain that you're keeping alive. And animals don't have rights. So it's not like you're violating the animal's rights by doing this. Uh, you can you can do, in principle, other similar tests on animals. Uh because they're not human beings, that's why we do animal testing in the first place. As long as it's in service of a legitimate research goal, such as helping humans and so forth in the long run, it's in principle 
legitimate to say, okay, what can we do here? How can we keep this brain functioning? What other things can we learn about it? Um, we do have an obligation, because not because of animal rights, but because of our nature as humans. We have an obligation to be compassionate mm-hmm. and not to do things to animals that cause them suffering unnecessarily. So there needs to be a legitimate purpose. You, you shouldn't like take an animal and remove its brain and then keep its brain alive just for the fun of it um, uh, yeah, because right. that's the it's not gonna it's it's the animal's not gonna presumably have as good a time without its body as it would with its body so unless there's a, a you know some legitimate goal that counterbalances what you're doing to the animal then you want to treat the animal humanely and 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 uh, without causing it unnecessary distress or discomfort or anything like that. But if there is a legitimate goal, then you could do that. Uh, but that, like, in, in, say you go super advanced society and um, you could take out a person's brain. It wouldn't be right. to. Oh, like, you're changing the question now. Yeah, but I just want to be clear on this because mm-hmm. this really bothers me. You wouldn't be right to like kidnap a passing person from a spaceship and take their brain out and run your city. Uh, using their brain like a super well, computer. not a human's brain, but maybe a Vulcan brain, uh-huh. like Mister Spock's that's, brain. Oh, that's right. Yeah. As, as a matter of fact, that's the name of that episode. Is Spock's it? brain? Spock's brain. Yeah. All right, uh, <laughs> we got to take a break. Uh, by, more. By, the, by the way, hypothetically, since we're doing you know the fringe weird stuff today, I mean, yeah. so could there be a legitimate reason for keeping a human brain alive outside of its body? I imagine there could be, but I, I would can't. imagine there could be too if the rest of their body is is died, you know. Uh, but if we had a way to keep a human brain alive and like give it a new body, let's say, um, maybe a mechanical one, you know, that's a trope of science fiction. You have heroes like Robot Man. Yeah, right. In DC Comics, he was a race car driver. His he would have his body was wrecked. He would have completely died in a car crash, except. They were able to save his brain and give him a robot body, and he was able to continue living. That's not, in principle, different than replacing other parts of the body with prostheses. Like if someone loses a leg, you give them a prosthetic leg. If someone uh, loses a hand, you give them a prosthetic hand. Someone loses an eye, you could hypothetically one day give them an eye. In fact, if you gave someone a, a mechanical eye and a mechanical arm and a couple of mechanical legs, it might even, you know, it could be expensive. It might total like, say, it's about six, six million, six million dollars, yeah, but yeah. you could do that. <laughs> you could rebuild them. You can we make have better the technology. Than, <laughs> you can make him better than he was. Uh, bulk up uh, for the fall this weekend with free shipping. Uh, we are offering free shipping with con, uh, in, within the continental United States on all cases ordered of our bulk book special. Uh, th- these include the bestsellers Why We're Catholic, Made This Way, Persuasive Pro-Life, and all of our 20 Answers titles with the price of $1 to $5 per copy on the books themselves when you go to the bulk, bulk book specials category at shop.catholic.com. For the next few days, you'll also get the shipping free. Limit three cases per title. Uh, go to shop.catholic.com and get your books in bulk this weekend. Got questions? Visit us today at catholic.com. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. Don't you feel sometimes like there's so many people in the world? How does he hear your prayer? Never think of that, huh? Everybody thinks that. I'm only a little grain of sand on the seashore. Oh, but that's not true. See, God is God. And you and I have to let God be God. I don't know how he does it. He's God. For more information on Mother Angelica, visit Religious Catalog at EWTNRC.com.
heard that St. Paul Street Evangelization supports hundreds of teams of evangelists sharing the good news. But did you know that some of these teams are public prayer stations? Set up a sign on the sidewalk and offer prayer and encouragement to those you encounter. Everyone needs prayer. Try this new method of witnessing to Jesus. Contact St. Paul Street Evangelization to get started at streetevangelization.com. That's streetevangelization.com. Broussard will be here. We're going to talk about answering the Protestant challenge this hour. Weird questions with Jimmy Aiken, and it was working out great because Jimmy Aiken is our guest. And uh, these questions have been submitted uh, via the various uh, ways you can submit questions here. Jimmy kind of collects them up for us. And the next one is from Ann. Uh, Jimmy, I want to know if there will come a time when God stops creating souls. Okay, I'm going to answer this in terms of human souls. Okay. Um, first, in terms of human souls, yes, as far as we know, okay. um, because at one point, uh, you know, uh, human history will end. Uh, the dead will be raised. The we're told that uh, in the resurrection, we're going to be like the angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. And so that would indicate that the human population at that point is immortal and stable. And thus, there would be no new human souls being created, at least in our world, as far as we know. Now, if there are parallel worlds where God also has humans, they might not hit hit that final state at the same time as us. So he might be creating human souls elsewhere. But for us in our world, as far as we know, there will come a time where there will be no more souls being created. Um at least as far as humans go. Now, when it comes to souls of other living creatures, we do have indications, at least in the imagery that's used in the book of Revelation, that there will be life on the new uh, heavens and earth. And since every living creature is understood to have a soul of some kind, even if it's not necessarily one that survives death, but at least it has a life principle that keeps its body alive, uh, we do have an indication of life existing in the next world. Uh, In fact, the uh, tree of life is said to exist or is depicted in Revelation as existing in the heavenly city, New Jerusalem. Now, it's hard to to know exactly how to interpret that symbolism beyond it means we're going to have access to immortality again. It, whether there will be a literal tree like that mm-hmm. is another question that is harder to discern the answer to. However, um, you know, we are innately biological creatures that are part of the material world. Scripture depicts us as having a, you know, physical, material, continued existence after the resurrection. And even though we say maybe won't need food or things like that, I would expect that God would adorn the future uh, state of the earth with other living things the way that uh, he adorned this one with other living things. And those other living things would have souls. And if they're not uh, given a special gift of immortality, 
uh, like we will be, then their bodies will break down over time and they will thus need to reproduce themselves to keep their populations going. And that would mean the creation of new souls of an animal or vegetative nature for them. And uh, so that to me, that leaves the question of angels. Has God already made all the angels that will be made or do we not know that either? Well, we don't know that for sure. Um, there. We're not given any evidence of ongoing creation of angels. Yeah. Uh, however, we know that they don't reproduce. Uh, yeah. So it would have to be new creations by God um, if they do. But we're not told of any new creations of angels by God. In fact, there's been a speculation theologically, and this is nothing more than a speculation. This is not church teaching. But there has been a speculation that the the that humans are being used to replace uh, in the heavenly hierarchy the angels that fell. So okay. a certain number of angels fell, and the idea is that God is going to make up that number of missing heavenly courtiers mm-hmm. with saved humans. And so that's an interesting idea, but it's not something that is actually taught by the church or in Scripture. All right, Anne, thank you very much for that question. Next comes from Ryan. I am not sure I believe Ryan's question. He says, uh, my five-year-old... Wait, 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 wait. What? Believing a question? A question is just a question. It doesn't have a truth value. Yeah, but here, listen to the question and I'll tell you why I don't believe it. My five-year-old, Patrick, wants to know why Jesus made dinosaurs. I suspect it's Ryan that wants to know this and he's just... Well, he's covering it. No, his claim uh, is that his son wants to know this, but the question itself doesn't have a truth value. Okay, fair enough. If I if I say what time is it, it's like you can't say false. (laughs) I I could, but it would be nonsensical. Right. But I am I'm not above nonsense. Well, I I am. I I won't comment on that. uh, Okay, so uh, his uh, allegedly it's Patrick that has this question Mm -hmm. uh, and Patrick is five years old. So why? I don't find that hard to believe. I I, I wondered about things like that as a kid, too. Why did Jesus make dinosaurs? Because they're cool. That's what I think. I mean, that's that's the basic answer, especially, you know, for someone who's very young. Yeah, I can give a more detailed answer for people who are a little older. Um, The more detailed answer is that every creature that God makes reflects some of the ways that God himself is great. Mm-hmm. And so God chose to display his glory by making creatures that reflect his glory. And so he made dinosaurs to reflect his glory, which is another way of saying, cause they're cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, uh, one might propose an additional reason, which is that uh, from what we can tell based on uh, modern scientific findings, it looks like. Evolution is true, and therefore, even though we're not directly descended from dinosaurs, the dinosaurs, because of how uh, prominent they were in Earth's history, would have had a role in shaping the evolution of our ancestors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're we're mammals, so we're descended from uh, creatures that were alive at the same time as the dinosaurs, but they uh, they were kind of 
kept in check mm-hmm. by the big dinosaurs, you know, who were the right. dominant things on Earth at the time. And our ancestors really couldn't make progress in terms of growing and filling different niches in the environment um, until the dinosaurs passed away. And so you can look at the uh, the presence of the dinosaurs as something that played a role in God's plan in terms of how our ancestors developed. And so in addition to creating dinosaurs just because they're cool and reflect God's glory, uh, you can also propose that God also used uh, the existence of the dinosaurs as a way of helping prepare our ancestors and other life forms for the arrival of man on Earth. Uh, I hope that answer is satisfying, Ryan. I mean, Patrick. Um, uh, uh, False. Dinosaurs are cool, though. Yeah. Very cool. Um, uh, I think we have Even the hot-blooded ones. There were hot-blooded dinosaurs? Come on, really? Oh, yeah. Or do you like as any that I know of or would Tyrannosaurus Rex was hot blooded? Yeah, huh. there. Were, I mean, you don't think that it you don't think you got a multi ton uh, meat eater with no fast metabolism to allow it to hunt, do you? Well, you say it like I'm dumb, but I uh, never thought well, of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you've seen like lizards that are that are cold blooded that are you yeah, know, all and, over my yard. I got lizards everywhere this year. Yeah, I don't know why. Well, the, if you see like big ones like Komodo dragons and stuff, they're, I don't have any they kind of kinda are slow. Oh, yeah. And if you're if and, and at least plant eating ones are slow. If you um, plant eating lizards and turtles and things like that are slow, if you want a if you want to hunt though you need a fast metabolism oh uh, yeah fair enough all right uh, let's try uh, richard i um richard asks oh this is a kind of a, a little bit of a, a novel mm-hmm. uh you live in the universe of the walking dead okay in, in which it is a biological certainty that a human being who dies will remain as a flesh-eating zombie unless the brain is destroyed mm-hmm. if you are bitten you will contract or contract a terrible fever that will certainly kill you. Does the principle of double effect make it permissible for you to take steps that after you're bitten would destroy your brain in order to avoid becoming a death trap for others? The way the question is phrased, the answer is yes, but you have to do it carefully. Um, You can't kill an innocent person. And therefore, uh, you have to wait until the person has uh, has is either dead, assuming you actually temporarily die before you come back as a zombie. And then as soon as you're dead, well, then, you know, the cinder block falls on your head or whatever and crushes your brain. And that's fine. And because you were dead at the time. I gotcha. Or if you don't really die. But you just kind of go into a coma and then emerge as a as a a aggressive zombie. zombie. You need to arrange so that your brain is destroyed after you've become an aggressor. Oh, because oh, oh, I see. Yeah, because then you then you wouldn't be an innocent party. Correct. You would be a threat to other life, and thus would be able to. Now, you might be subjectively innocent, but that's not what we're talking about. You don't. You you can no, right. you can kill an aggressor even though they're crazy and out of their head and are subjectively innocent. If they're attacking you, you can defend yourself or yeah. defend others, and that's what this would amount to is proxy self defense. You're defending others by arranging for your own death after you've become an aggressor and are no longer in control of yourself. Mm-hmm. It would be pretty impressive engineering, though, to do that second one. Like, mm, a, like maybe. I can't think of depends. A oh, well, OK. So, you know, it's going to you could, let's say, chain yourself up 
Okay. Uh, and have a bomb set to go off after you a time that you know you will have become an aggressor by. So you can't oh. get away from the bomb because of the chain, and you know you will be an aggressor because you've set the timer late enough that the virus will have done its work. Uh, that's a, a very good um, little way to conclude the first half of yeah. Weird Questions Wouldn't with Jimmy Wouldn't that be good Aiken. to have in a zombie apocalypse? <laughs> you would be great to have around. Uh, you got to work on your cardio, though, uh, in, in a zombie universe. <laughs> we'll be right back with more Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken on Catholic Answers Live. Dr. Scott Hahn, and stay tuned for more Catholic Answers Live. A generation ago, Christian parents didn't have to worry about how to explain transgenderism to their nine-year-old children or help their teenager deal with mockery at school for believing in traditional marriage. But today, as our culture decays, we have to know how to talk to our children about these issues. In Made This Way, How to Prepare Kids to Face Today's Tough Moral Issues, Layla Miller and Trent Horn give parents the crucial tools and techniques to form children with the understanding they need appropriate to their age and maturity level to meet the world's challenges. If we're not teaching our children how to understand tough moral issues, then the world will. Read Made This Way and learn how to give your kids a firm foundation on which to build a life of moral clarity and happiness. Order your copy of Made This Way today by calling 1-888-291-8000 or logging on to the shop at catholic.com. With the recent commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the release of Humani Vitae, there have been fresh attacks on Catholic teaching from outside and unfortunately inside the church. That's why Catholic Answers thought it critical to provide a vigorous affirmation of Pope Paul VI's prophetic wisdom with our newest book, Inseparable, Five Perspectives on Sex, Life, and Love in Defense of Humani Vitae. We asked five distinguished contributors to reflect on and defend Humani Vitae from five perspectives, each of them compelling, together forming a mosaic of truth. Don't be caught uninformed when the topic comes up among friends, family, and co-workers. Order your copy of Inseparable today by calling one 291 or by visiting the shop at catholic.com. Live. It's Friday. This Friday is Weird Question Day. Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy Aiken, senior apologist here at Catholic Answers, the author of A Daily Defense, 365 Days Plus One to Becoming a Better Apologist. You can you could order that right now at shop.catholic.com. That's how easy it is to get that book. And it's worth it, too. 365 questions and answers in a very, how, how would we say it? Easy to use format. Uh, easy to read. Easy to read. Yep. Very short. Right. All on yeah. a single page. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's weird questions. So people have submitted these questions to us uh, in mostly from Facebook, I think. And uh, Richard is up next. No, we just did Richard, The Walking Dead. Okay. So, John. Uh, weird question. Well, this okay. This seems a good question. I like it. I, I'm just not sure. It's completely weird. Uh, is beauty objective? Recently, I heard a theology professor on Catholic Answers say that beauty was subjective, and I was very troubled after hearing that because I always heard the contrary. Hmm. So I don't know who this may have been, and I didn't hear the broadcast, so I can't really comment on that. But I can comment on the 
question, and you're right, this isn't the weirdest one in the batch, but um, I would say that the answer is a mix, Um, Mm -hmm. that there is a a degree to which beauty is objective and there's a degree to which beauty is subjective. One of the things that we found by studying um, things people find beautiful is that they display certain qualities um, like symmetry. Mm -hmm. If you you look at a, a beautiful person's body, they are going to display certain kinds of symmetry, you know, like their eyes are going to be on the same level. They're they're oh. they're going to have their ears are going to be on the same level. But then if you imagine someone who has like one eye half an inch lower than the other eye, that person's which would be asymmetrical. That person's not going to appear as beautiful. OK, so there is a uh, an objective quality to beauty, including physical beauty. There are also um, things like in mathematics where certain and in physics where certain equations are beautiful. Mm-hmm. And scientists will regularly talk about how um, the how the beauty of these equations is something that compels them to go forward with their studies and so forth. So um, I, I think that there are there is an objective quality aspect to beauty, but there's also a subjective aspect. Um, not every person has the same tastes in beauty. Mm-hmm. Not every species has the same tastes in beauty. I was watching a documentary once about lions, and one of the things that they had found by studying lions was that female lions found male lion images of male lions more attractive if the uh, whisker patterns that they have yeah. on their muzzle displayed symmetry. Oh, just awesome. just like so they there's an objective thing that the female lions were queuing in on. But human women typically do not find male lions attractive. I mean, they may, might, you know, not in the way female lions do. Let's put it that That's way. That's a fascinating point, Jimmy. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so and, okay. and vice versa. Yeah. So we uh, see that sub from that there's a subjective aspect here. Humans find humans attractive in a way lions don't. Lions find lions attractive in a way humans don't. Mm-hmm. Um, even within our own species, though, there are uh, different standards of aesthetics. There's a learned component to them. One of the things that I remember also um, uh, in college, I believe, I was taking a course on anthropology and or maybe it was film studies, but it was one of the two. And there they were talking about how when films were being shown to like a a tribe somewhere in the developing world that had not seen films before, they uh, were watching the film and they appreciated the long shots that they would have where you get to see more, you know, more. But then when a close up would happen on like a person's face, they would object and say, no, we want to see a whole person. Ah. And, So they hadn't learned that because motion pictures were new to them. They hadn't learned Mm -hmm. the language of modern motion pictures, whereby folk giving using a close up, you're focusing attention on a person's face so you can see the emotional impact of what's happening more on that person. So there's a kind of visual language that filmmakers developed over the years. But if you're coming to it new 
then yeah. if it's not part of your experience, then you may read it differently. Right. Uh, I know in my own uh, background, at one point I was listening because I wasn't raised Catholic. I wasn't raised with organ music in church. To me, organ music was largely, you know, what mad scientists played. Yeah, or a Bela Lugosi movie or something. Yeah, exactly. And I, I remember once listening to an album of Bach organ music and I suddenly realized, oh, this is not meant to be mad scientist music. This is meant to be like church music. And so, you know, that was a moment in my own aesthetic education. And I've noticed also that, like, if I listen to an album and I'm dating myself by using the word album, but if I listen to for the youngsters, those were collections of songs on vinyl. Yeah. What later became CDs. And now I don't know what they call them. Um, we don't use CD. Yeah, but it's a collection of, of yeah, say, right. songs. And I often found well, the first time I listened to an album, I, I wasn't that wild about it. But then mm-hmm. as I listened to it again and again, I would start to appreciate what the musicians were doing because now I was understanding what they were trying to do. And I found the same thing uh, would happen with novels and things like that. Oftentimes my first pass through something is not my favorite pass Uh, that as I learn a work of art, as I learn more about a work of art, I appreciate it more. And that reflects the more subjective aspect of of beauty as I learn more about it I can appre- as a subject yes. I can appreciate it more right right yeah um uh, wait who was that that was uh John John thank you very much for that question it's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken today and uh we go now to Rick um who says my 6 year old wants to oh, know Oh are you going to doubt this one too skeptical sigh <laughs> <laughs> I just think the dad's we have a tendency, like, if we want to go see a really good Disney movie, we go, our kid wants to see it. That's why. But we really want to see it. If we want to ask a question about dinosaurs, we say the kid wants to know. Well, but it may be true that the kid wants to know. The dad may also want to know. Exactly. All right. Fair enough. Rick, so Rick, said, Rick claims mm-hmm. his six-year-old wants to know, if a baby dies, mm-hmm. will it be a baby in heaven? And will it age in heaven? Fascinating question. Um, the... Answer is that the way Catholic and and you can I'm going to say it using words that a six year old might not know, but um, the way Catholic theologians, Mm -hmm. that means for a six year old people who study God, Mm -hmm. um, the way Catholic theologians have understood the answer to this question is that when we're in heaven, we're going to be physically perfect. So we won't have either the uh, problems we have when we're young mm-hmm. or the problems, physically, pro- physical problems uh, when, that we have when we're young or the physical problems we have when we're old. And so um, it will at least be because we won't have physical problems. Yeah. And so that would mean that uh, even though you might not be able to assign a physical age to a person easily, uh, presumably they wouldn't be stuck as a baby for all eternity. On the other hand, they wouldn't be aging either. It's like in this Mm -hmm. life, you start aging and there's no way to stop it. There's no way to reverse it. You know, uh, we can do little things to, no, no, we can do little things to, uh, to, you know, help us age in a healthy way. But 
our bodies are constantly experiencing the aging process, but they won't be aging either in the next world in heaven. So, um, so uh, in the resurrection, I would say someone who died as a baby will have a perfect human form that will not be either uh, subject to the limitations of youth or mm-hmm. the limitations of old age. Now, you'll notice I said that in a kind of careful way because we do see evidence in the case of Jesus of him being able, to, when he wants, to appear with defects like the wounds from the cross, from oh, the crucifixion. I see. Yeah, right. And so uh, we also see evidence that he could potentially change his appearance yeah. in his resurrected form. And so I would think, and since we're told we're going to be like Jesus in terms of what it's going to be like for us in the resurrection, I would say that even though we're not going to be limited by youth or old age or the problems we have in those phases of life, we may it may be possible for us at will to assume those appearances. Mm-hmm. And so you might be able to appear as a baby if mm-hmm. you want in the resurrection or to appear as an old man or to appear in other ways. And so um, so that's we can't be sure here, but that's the. Uh, way the evidence seems to point. So I I would say that a baby, uh, no, baby won't have a body at all until the resurrection if someone dies as a baby. Um, So so the the question doesn't really arise until we get to the resurrection. My suspicion is that someone who died as a baby will be able to appear as any age they choose to in the resurrection. I would imagine most people would choose 54 then. It's like the, almost like it's like the perfect age. Uh, you, I'll take your word on that. Yeah, people. Who I'll are let 50. you know when I get there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jimmy Aiken. Hey, we'd like you to join the radio club. We give away free stuff pretty much every week uh, at Radio Club. Something uh, at the very least, you get a letter and we uh, tell you what's up and and we ask you for your input. We have poll questions regularly in the Radio Club email and uh, and as I said, we give away free stuff. Sometimes it's um. It's an MP3. Have you mentioned we give away free stuff? We do, in fact, give away free. I I wonder if I had mentioned that. I don't know. At 54, I can't always remember what I just said. But (laughs) (laughs) the way you join Radio Club, and we really want you to join Radio Club, is you just text all one word, Radio Club, to 44222. Text Radio Club, one word, to 44222. If you don't do that texting thing, you can also join online by going to CatholicAnswersLive.com and find the Radio Club registration button. We'll be right back with more Jimmy Aiken and weird questions after this. We're glad you're with us. Stick around for more Catholic Answers Live. Are you a coffee drinker? If so, you can now enjoy a coffee roasted to perfection by the Carmelite monks of Wyoming. Delicious Mystic Monk coffee is roasted and prepared by monks in a hidden cloistered monastery and is available in over 25 varieties. All Mystic Monk coffees are works of perfection and labors of love. For more information on how to purchase Mystic Monk coffee, visit mysticmonkcoffee.com. That's mysticmonkcoffee.com. 
WTN, communicating the faith. I feel that God has been really doing a work in me in the last five, ten years. I'm a convert to Catholicism, and I started to just really feel a passion to know more about the Catholic faith, and I started listening to Catholic radio all day. I'm not doing great things, but I'm doing small things with great love. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. This hour, we've got a whole bunch of weird questions. And uh, Brandon, uh, the video guy, uh, pretended to be Lindsay from South Carolina to ask the following question. Why are you looking at me like that, Brandon? You didn't I didn't know I was going to out you like that. Sorry. Uh, But uh, this is actually from Brandon uh, behind the cameras there. Um, Why do male seahorses give birth? Male seahorses give birth because they're, you know, the basic answer is because uh, their species evolved that way. So what happens in seahorse reproduction? Now, in the case of many animals um, that live underwater, neither species gives birth. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like typical way fish reproduce is the female will lay eggs on a rock. The male will fertilize those eggs and then the parents leave and uh, the eggs are left to hatch on their own. In some cases, a parent may hang around. So in like the case of some octopus species, uh, the correct plural of which of octopus is octopodes. Um, What? Yeah, because it's from the Greek word pos, meaning foot. Yeah. Eight, eight foot octopode. Oh. Um, so uh, not octopete. No, <laughs> um, the the in some species of octopus, the female will lay the eggs, the male will fertilize them, and then the female will watch them until they hatch and like protect them. Mm-hmm. And then she'll die. And what's a cruel world. Yeah. But what they found that's fascinating is the the death is visually triggered. So if so, she needs to see the babies hatching before her death uh, reflex triggers. Uh And so they've had situations where they've experimentally blinded the female octopus so she can't see the babies hatch and she just keeps on living. Um, <laughs> so if your eye causes you to die, you pluck it out, something that- <laughs> like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, in any event, um, in the case of seahorses, uh, the males have a pouch, like kind of like kangaroos do. Yeah. And the female lays the eggs into the male's pouch mm-hmm. where they're fertilized. And then the male carries them for, you know, a few days or weeks, however long it is in a given species. And then he gives birth. OK. Um, so that's how he gets the eggs as they're deposited in him by the female. But there's a fascinating consequence to this because he's the one that carries them. He has the bigger biological investment. In the offspring, oh. uh, the same way in our species, humans, uh-huh. you were aware we're humans, right? I, well, yeah, well, vaguely, mostly. Yeah. OK, I, so um, we're mostly the, humans. Yeah, yeah. Okay. most of us are. So in our species, females, women have the bigger biological investment yes, in the offspring right. because they've got to carry the offspring right. and it's like nine months and they have to undergo all this inconvenience. They also have fewer chances to reproduce. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's only a certain number of children a given woman could have in a year. But if a man were to have, let's say, a huge harem 
like Genghis Khan did, yeah. he could have loads of children in a given lifetime. Right. So that shows us there's a differential between the sexes in terms of which sex has more biological investment in in the offspring because it's a greater cost to that sex. And it even in humans continues after birth because only women can nurse babies. Yes. And so before, you know, formula and domestication of farm animals, the only way you had to get milk to a child was by nursing. Um, so uh, women have a much greater time and energy and safety because there are health risks. You know, I mean, you could yeah. die in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have a much greater biological investment in our offspring. Well, in seahorses, it's the reverse. The male, because he's the one that carries the babies, has the bigger biological investment. And what they found is that in different species, whichever sex, if one has a greater biological investment, that's the sex that gets to choose who to mate with normally. Right. And that's why in humans, men court women. Yeah. And the women, because they if they get pregnant by a man, they've got the bigger burden, yeah. especially if he takes off and doesn't help. And so that's why women in the human species are choosier about men yeah. than men sometimes are about women. So I like the and, use of sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and and in seahorses, it's the reverse. Ah. The males are the ones who who play hard to get. And mm-hmm. the females are the ones who court the males and try to win the male's affection. Why does that not surprise me that you had an encyclopedic encyclopedic answer to that uh, question? Um <laughs> This is a question I wanted to get to, so I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. Brian asks, during teleportation, where Mm -hmm. is the person? Theoretical, of course, before, after, during, at 20%. I like that he did it at 20%. So you're teleporting something like the Star Trek. uh, Okay, so the answer is going to depend on the type of teleportation you're using. Mm -hmm. In some versions of teleportation, kind of the most basic version of teleportation, it simply travel extremely rapidly. And so, like, if I'm here in uh, San Diego and a second later I appear in New York, but I've covered all the space, like a super fast jet flight that only took one second, that would still seem like teleportation to us. So in some people's, like if you read Larry Niven's essay on teleportation, Larry Niven being a science fiction writer, he counts that just super fast motion as teleportation. In that case, if I'm 20% of the way between San Diego and New York at the moment, well, then that's where I am. I'm 20% of the way between. I'm at whatever stage of the journey I'm at in the slice of time you specify. Then there are other kinds of teleportation. Another kind of non-destructive teleportation where it doesn't like in Star Trek take your body apart into component atoms. Um, Another kind is also explored by Larry Niven in his known space series where he has these devices, uh, either they're either called transfer booths or stepping disks, and they apparently access dimensions that are normally hidden to us, but you're like briefly in the blink of an eye shunted from one place to another through these hidden dimensions. Mm -hmm. And so you're not taken apart. You're just shunted through this, this other dimension. So in that case, where you are in the middle of a teleport is you're you're somewhere in one of these hidden dimensions. In the case of uh, of Star Trek teleporters, where you're disassembled and reassembled elsewhere, um, 
the there are a couple of ways of looking at it. If you take what they say on Star Trek most of the time in just a straightforward way that you're being deconstructed and your the energy from your body is being transmitted to a new location and put back together, then at a certain point early in the teleportation process, you die. And so you because your body's been taken apart, it's not functioning anymore. You don't have a body. Mm. And so you've just been murdered by the teleport by the transporter. Mm-hmm. Um, then the remnants of your body, which are kind of like cremains, only you, they're like atomanes in this case because mm-hmm. you've been atomized, mm-hmm. um, are moved to a new location and put back together. And you so in that middle phase where you're dead, you're not anywhere. Maybe you're so not physically. Your soul may have gone off to heaven or if certain theories about the soul are correct that have been talked about in Jewish and Christian history, such that the soul hangs around for a few days after the body has died. Oh, yeah. Um, And this is sometimes thought to play a role in why Jesus doesn't resurrect Lazarus until like the fourth day, because the soul was thought to hang around for three days. So by waiting till the fourth day, Jesus is truly reaching into the next world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But suppose your soul does hang around for three days around your body. Well, Okay, your body's just been atomized by the transporter, but if your soul's still hanging around those atoms, Mm -hmm. then when it gets put back together, that might be you. Or it Mm. might be a clone of you that has a brand new soul. What? Because it needs a soul if it's going to be a living body. And if your soul went off to heaven irretrievably, then this is like basically your identical twin. And it has no more the same soul as you than if you had an identical twin from birth. Would that twin have the same soul as you? Two different bodies, two different souls. Um, Then there's what you find in a few episodes of Star Trek. In particular, there is one where in Next Generation where Lieutenant Barkley begins to experience things in mid-transport. Oh, yes. And so his consciousness is there. He's even attacked by like what seems to be a creature in mid-transport and reacts to it in mid-transport. And if that's the case, then that would suggest that your consciousness actually continues with your body in the transport process. And so you aren't actually taken apart and atomized. You're just transitioned into some other state of matter that lets you be moved from one place to another. But your body is actually still in this transitioned way, still functioning and so forth. So you're actually still alive. And um, you might be, depending on how that process works, smeared out over a wide swath of space between the transporter that is controlling the process and the destination point where you're headed to. And you might be in all of those different locations at once. So depends on the type of, uh, of teleportation you're using. I, um, uh, wow. That's, uh, that's a lot to think about. That's yeah. very interesting. I don't like the clone one. I, yeah. Uh, that's, that's kind of the most disturbing. Let's get to Taylor. I think we can get this in before we have to go. Uh, and uh, next hour, Carla Broussard will be here. Uh, but, uh, Jimmy Aiken with us for weird questions with Jimmy Aiken this hour. Taylor asks, please describe how it might be possible for heaven purgatory earth and hell to be in four or fewer different universes that we live within a multiverse environment 
Okay, four or fewer. Well, um, the way that it would be that those four realms could be in fewer universes is if we obviously there there because we're talking about four different realms, they could be in as many as four different universes. In fact, it could be even more than that, because in Jewish and Christian literature, there are multiple heavens. And maybe each heaven is a different universe. St. Paul talks about third heaven and visiting third heaven in a vision. Um, Also, uh, another first century Christian document, the Ascension of Isaiah, talks about seven heavens. So um, it's possible that there could be multiple heavens in meaning even more universes or dimensions or whatever you want to say. On the other hand, you could say it's less than that. Uh, You could say that it's less than four. You could, if you, and a lot of people historically did this, would say, well, hell really is located down in the bowels of the earth somewhere, and Mm -hmm. heaven really is located up in the sky somewhere. Um, That's not what uh, current findings indicate, but it would be possible to collapse these other realms into fewer than one dimension and one universe. Also, if by universe you mean physical universe, you could say there's only one physical universe. Ours and these other realms don't count as universes because they're not physical. All right, Jimmy, that was an excellent show. So uh, what's going to be the subject of our next episode? Next episode, we're going to be looking at a mystery from down under. It's the Tamam Shud case or the mystery of the mysterious death of the Somerton Man. And we're going to have some guest appearances by our friends, the Catholics of Oz. Excellent. So, folks, send us your feedback by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, or send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akins Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>